All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. If you want to make your way in, starting our, our Q&A time. And this is a little bit new for us. I, I've never moderated a Q&A, um, and, uh, but I'm supposed to just ask the questions, and so that sounds good to me. If you have a question t- um, to ask, um, the way we're going to do this instead of just having an open mic is to have you just text those questions to the number that's up here on the screen. Uh, that will go to, um, uh, to a phone that Pastor Eric has down here, and he'll be, uh, he'll be f- figuring out what questions we're able to actually tackle with our time that we have. Um, I'll just let you know ahead of time, the, you know, this has been really cool, and it, it may end up going a little bit longer. If at any time you say, need to get on for the new week, um, then you, you feel free to, uh, to slip out. But um, just thankful for the opportunity to ask these men, not, not claiming to have all the answers, but have a, a great breadth of knowledge about science and then a love for God um, and his word. So looking forward to learning from them. So I'm going to jump up here, and we'll get started with our, with our questions. So um, our first question uh, is um, is this? If a young Christian was interested in the sciences and interested in making a difference in the area of creation science research, what are some steps they could take? The first thing is to figure out what science field you're interested in: chemistry, biology, physics, whatever. Uh, then stay up to date with what's going on in the creation community. So I recommend reading Acts and Facts from ICR, which is a free publication. And uh, so that's easy. And then, when you're ready to go to college, go to a school that believes in young earth creation, believes in about creation as the Bible teaches, and uh, you'll be well prepared for that. Anything you want to add to that? Well, eventually, once you get far far enough along, it would sure be nice to find a mentor who specializes in that area and get in contact with them. There's a lot of folks who would love to pour their lives into you they knew you were really interested. Was that the case with you? Actually, yes. Yeah. Um, my master professor, Dr. Gary Parker, was life-changing for me. That's great. Um, you've had influential professors, but what about books? What, what would be a favorite book or video um, about the relationship between creation and science that you could recommend for us? A book I've been reading recently was Carved in Stone by Tim Clary, and it's just the latest of a long line of books I've read, but I enjoyed it because it told me about the geology from the flood. Now, Chris is going to talk about the flood next week, and you'll hear more about that. There's a lot of books. It depends what you're interested in. There's a lot of books out there about the Bible and creation. You want to recommend some others? Oh, I like to read. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of good videos, too. I like pictures, yeah. They have pictures, okay. I really like the movie um, documentary, um, Is Genesis History? Yeah, that's a very good one. Yeah, and there's a new one out about the mountains that were formed by the flood. I've yet to watch it, but it's coming. It's been just. I've seen it. Have you seen it? Is it good? Yeah, it is. It's more specialized. Okay. So, again, it depends what you're interested in. I I was intrigued with the geology of the West and how it's a result of the flood. And that's why I looked at those things. And Chris, just to plug here for next Sunday, you'll be speaking more specifically on um, the flood, the biblical flood. And that will be at 
um, 11 a.m.? Yeah, that's Sunday? the second talk. Okay. Yeah, and not only quickly, is, was there a flood, but how it happened. I think we've got it pretty well nailed. Yeah, that's significant. All right, let's move on. Um, thanks for, for keeping these short. We have a number of questions. And again, if you have some, just feel free to, um, to text the number up there. Which of the statements about creation in Genesis 1 is hardest to reconcile with the scientific evidence that we have? Yeah, I don't, I don't have any um, problems scientifically. I mean, there are a lot of people who, who are subscribing to an evolutionary worldview, and for them, things are out of order. Uh, one we just talked about earlier, the fact that the sun was created on day four, yet we had the, you know, we had the evening and morning on day one. And so that, that throws a lot of people off. And uh, so I think that's the one that's hardest for most people uh, to think about as far as the order of creation. Could you address that one in particular, or is it not enough time now? Yeah, well, I mean, we talked about the fact that God, I think, made the sun and the moon and the stars on day four in order to show his supremacy over them. The fact that, you know, we should not worship the heavenly bodies. He could wait four whole days to create them. The important thing was him and what he could create by the word of his mouth. I think he's sending us a message through that. And uh, and so so people, you know, they they have trouble with these things because they have maybe an evolutionary or a scientific mindset that doesn't correspond to biblical creation. Um, I suppose something that I'm puzzled about, um, and that is when God separated the waters above the firmament from below the firmament, and he called the firmament heaven, and it seems like, well, that's the atmosphere, but it's also space. And so I'm kind of wondering, was that water above the firmament? Was that uh, just the clouds? Was it a canopy? Or is there something at the edge of the universe? You know, so. so it used to be in the, um, up to the 1970s, uh, starting with uh, Henry Morris, John Whitcomb's book, The Genesis Flood, they talked about a vapor canopy that was above the earth. And that, to them, that was the waters above the firmament. But the Bible talks about the sun, moon, and stars being in the firmament. Yeah. And so some creationists today, uh, like uh, Russell Humphreys, yeah. talk about the water being outside of the universe. If we got to the edge of the universe, we'd find the universe enveloped in water. And so that's a literal reading of Genesis 1, that the waters above the firmament are on the edge of the universe. Does the order of the days of creation make sense from a scientific perspective? You've addressed this a little bit just now, but the order of the days of creation. Yeah, I mean, nobody asked my opinion. About how God's sovereign, he can do what he wants. Uh, but it seems, you know, because we're so influenced by evolutionary ideas, uh, the idea of creating, say, the uh, birds and the sea creatures before we created the land animals, I mean, that seems odd to me. But he can do anything he wants. And uh, so who am I to say what the order should be? But we do see, I think, we see clearly that light has to come first. Electromagnetism has to come first before we have the atoms that make up the world that we live in. I like the symmetry of the creation account, that the first three days, in effect, God is creating habitats, loosely used, and the next three days, he's filling the habitats. 
So, you know, it creates light in day one. Day four, it's the light bearers, the sun, moon, stars. Day two, he separates the waters above, below, creating the ocean and the atmosphere. On day five, he fills the ocean with, with sea creatures, including fish, and the atmosphere with birds. Day three is kind of three part, or two parts to it. He separates the water from the land, so creating the land, and then he puts the plants on the land. On day six, he fills the land with land creatures and then creates man. So that has its two parts. So I, I really like the, I think the symmetry is really neat. And it helps me remember it. <laughs> what is the basic evolutionary explanation for where life itself came from? Oh boy, that was, a, that was my area before I was a Christian. I thought I had that nailed. We had the, we thought that, uh, okay, the Earth, primitive Earth, had gases like the outer planets of our solar system, methane, ammonia, and hydrogen, and water vapor, and that lightning was reacting and creating the amino acids, and they would collect in the ocean, and they would wash onto the edge of volcano, and then the heating there would cause them to bind together into proteins, and at any rate, they, we kind of had a series of reactions here. We thought we had it kind of figured out. And uh, I was on a debate team, and that was my area, until Dwayne T. Gish came along, and com- he was a biochemist from UC Berkeley, a young earth creationist, and he took every single, every brick of evidence I had upon another, completely decimated. And uh, that was really the, the turning point for me from evolution to creation, especially when I asked my professor uh, what was wrong with this. And he had no answer, except for, he said, the difference between us evolutionists and those creationists isn't the evidence, but how we interpret the evidence. And I asked him, well, what other interpretation could there be? And he says, that's a hard question. (laughs) He said, right now, that's a very hard question. At that moment, I realized, Boy, his head is spinning as fast as mine is. <laughs> and I said, wow, if that area of evolution that I thought I knew the best turned out to be a house of cards, what other areas do I need to reexamine? And that started a lifelong search for me. That's, that's incredible. Um, another question is, um, are there transitional fossils? I realize we're moving from one thing to the next pretty quickly here, but... Um, let's jump into fossils. Are there transitional fossils? Let your handle that. Yep. Uh, trans- I'll be talking a little bit about that. Yeah, it's interesting. The textbook has quite a few of them, right? Textbooks have it. Well, it's interesting. The, the areas that they find the most transitional fossils are the parts of the fossil record we know least about. Almost always, they're going to be land vertebrates, which by statistical testing, it's been estimated that that part of the fossil record is less than 1% complete. So imagine a jigsaw puzzle, and I'm stealing thunder from my next presentation, but imagine a jigsaw puzzle on the ground where you had less than 1% of the pieces, and most of the pieces you had were little pieces of the pieces. Could you arrange that puzzle into an evolutionary picture where this one is a transitional between these? Well, yeah, but with so little evidence, I could make it of a picture of my Uncle Ferd, as I say. I mean, with so little, it could be anything. You just not enough information to know. What really I think is telling is the parts of the fossil record they don't talk about. 
the most complete part of the fossil record is the brachiopods. That's estimated to be 80 to 90% complete. And those fossils are almost always entire fossils. And yet, you look at all the charts that evolutionists make of those, and there's never a transition. Those are all very distinct groups. And then the second most complete would be uh, the shelled moss, and that's about 60% complete. And again, you, you, you look at the charts, and I haven't seen one that even has a hint of a transitional form. There's all, all that connects them at the base is dotted lines. Brachiopods, you're saying? Yeah, brax. I love the brax. <laughs> All right. I'll have to look into that. Um, they look they look like they're shelled like a clam, but the creature inside is, I don't know, kind of not really a crab-like, but it's certainly not a clam-like. When we were trying to date fossils, um, one person was asking, how do we reconcile radiocarbon dating with our biblica- biblical account of a recent creation? So in the 19th century, uh, they pretty much dated the fossils by the layer it was in the rock. And uh, they dated that by their evolutionary presuppositions. You know, they, they, in the 19th century, the earth was millions of years old. It didn't get to be billions of years old to the 20th century. And then when radioactivity was discovered, uh, they started trying to date things using radioactive isotopes. And, but that kind of dating involves a lot of assumptions. They're assuming, first of all, that they know how much of a particular parent uh, element was in that material when it was created. Well, they don't know that. I mean, usually, like for uranium lead, uranium's the parent, lead's the daughter, the uranium decays into lead. And so they're assuming it's all uranium and no lead. But that doesn't make any sense. Why wouldn't God create lead as well? You can't say that all the lead on earth came from uranium, right? So they, they assume they know how much was there to start with. Then they assume that nothing washed in or out, okay, with everything that's going on. That's, a, that's an assumption. And then they're assuming that radioactive decay rates are constant over time. Well, how long, how long have we been measuring radioactive decay rates? And the answer is, well, since Madame Curie. And we get about 100 years. Okay, so what about radioactive decay rates a thousand years ago? What do we know about those? Nothing. Okay, and so do radioactive decay rates change? And there's strong evidence uh, that they actually do. We see rapid radioactive decay in certain places where we look. Uh, For example, when uranium decays into lead, it produces hydrogen or helium atoms. And we can measure the helium escape rates from the rock. And we've got those down pretty well. The helium escape rates give us a short age, young age, of thousands of years, whereas the radioactive decay rates, based on evolutionary assumptions, give us millions and billions of years. So which is right? Well, the answer is the shortest age, logically, has to be the right one, okay? Can't be any older than the shortest age. And so uh, they're making assumptions which are unwarranted in order to prop up their idea of an old Earth. So there's a lot more that can be said about radioactive decay rates, and uh, I have a whole message that I do on it, and I'm not going to afflict you with that right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, But just remember that these things are based upon assumptions that they make. When we're going to Australia next week, uh, we're going to go to a place called Castle Hill in, in Townsville. It's a very unusual hill right in the middle of the town, 
And so they decided to see how old it was. So they took samples from different parts of the hill, and they were all different. And so if you go there, it'll say, it'll say, we don't know how old it is because they can't get the dates to agree with each other. And that's a problem. So what do they usually do? They usually throw out the dates that don't agree with their evolutionary presuppositions, and they keep the ones that they like, and that's how we get the dates that they assign to them. Yeah, it's sad. That happens a lot, and, and a lot of that happens behind closed doors, so we really do, a lot of us don't have really much access to the actual data. Uh, carbon-14 sure gets blamed for a lot. You know, he says, well, we know from carbon-14, carbon dating, that the Earth is millions of years old. Impossible, first of all. Carbon-14's half-life is 5,730 years at today's rate. Okay, that sounds like a long time, but you start doing the halving, you know, like compounding interest. In one million years, if you started, the, if the Earth started as a pure diamond of nothing but pure carbon-14, in one million years, with half and half, you know, every, every 6,000 years you're having it, in a million years there would not even be a single atom left. So it's not even theoretically possible for carbon-14 to give millions of years. Okay, you've got to use other radiometric dating, not carbon-14. And on top of that, uh, I mean, it still gives thousands of, of tens of thousands of years, which is, I think, too old. But that's given the assumption that the, the amount of carbon-14, the concentration in our atmosphere, is constant. And we know it's not. It's increasing. It says, well, they thought that's a... Well, there's environmental things causing that to happen. Or it could be possibly be, because the atmosphere just hasn't been around that long, that the carbon-14 hasn't built up to reach a steady state. Right, it. it's not a steady state yeah. yet, which would happen within 40,000 years. And so maybe if, 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 so if you calculate back to a time when we had less carbon-14 atmosphere, now instead of those 80,000 years, you're now well under 10,000 years. You had said that you you have a sermon or a, a yeah. So so I used to teach uh, analytical chemistry, and we talked about accelerated mass spectrometers, and that's how they measure carbon fourteen. And so you can't find any carbon in the world that does is not contaminated with young carbon, right. carbon fourteen. And so carbon dating is one of the best ways we know the Earth is young. So if we go to deep well carbon dioxide, we go to even diamonds. Yep. And uh, if, you, if you analyze a diamond, it has new carbon in it. And these diamonds are supposed to be 2 billion years old. Yet they have di- and we can't measure carbon-14 longer than 100,000 years. 100,000 years would be the theoretical limit. So my students would say, well, what do they do? I showed them. I showed them you know, the samples, like coal, for example. Coal has about the same carbon dating, all right? which shows that all the coals formed at the same time during the flood. Okay, And they would say, well, what do they do when they see this new carbon in this old source of carbon? <laughs> and I said, what they do is they take the dial and they go, like that, they turn it and they zero it out. Because it can't be there. New carbon can't be there, and so it must be contamination. So they just zero it out. My students would go, oh, like that. Can they really do that? Yeah, they really do that. They just zero it out because they know, based on their evolutionary assumptions, they know it can't be there. So they just zero it out. It doesn't fit. That's yeah, right. And yet, diamond is the hardest known substance there is. So how? How are you going to contaminate a yeah, diamond? How are you going to have a carbon fourteen atom yes. diffuse into the matrix of a diamond? Yeah. yeah, that's pretty fascinating. If someone was to want, wanted to learn more about that, 
Uh, could they see you and you could give them information on that message sure. about carbonating? Yeah. And it's a good book, too. It's called uh, Thousands, Not Billions. Yes, there's a video about it that's uh, it's a little dated now. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's hokey, but it's, yeah. it was yeah. a cheap budget. <laughs> thousands, not billions? Yes. Yeah, thousands, not billions. Great. Speaking of time, age, um, someone asks, what do you do with the dendrological science that gives trees like bristlecone pines an age of 5,000 to 9,000 years old? As far as the, the rings are concerned. So, um, the, uh, so they're counting tree rings. And so the, the idea is that these trees don't live that long. So that what they're doing is they're comparing patterns of tree rings and trying to see how far back they can go mm-hmm. and in, in, in the past. But they're making a lot of assumptions. They're making assumptions about how fast these tree rings grow, what the weather was like during that time. You know, during times of drought, the tree rings are smaller, and during times, wet times, they're larger and that type of thing. So there's a lot of guesswork that goes into this. Uh, and uh, I'm not an expert in that area, but uh, we don't have any bristlecone pines that date to beyond thousands of years old. Yeah, still, um, I remember um, knowing a person who had charge of of the bristlecone pine um, data yeah. and and the the actual tree rings and segment. The, yeah. I mean, there in Arizona, and this person was a younger. Creationist mm-hmm. <laughs> who had charge of yeah. Ferguson's um, work. Um, actually, I think if I were trying to argue against a biblical viewpoint, a young earth viewpoint, mm-hmm. uh, there's enough uh, uncertainty there. I think maybe that would have been one of the better cases, okay. either for or against. There's, there's, there's good news and bad news <laughs> with Bristlecone Pines. Yeah. Let me shift gears here and t- ask the question, how can we see, <clears throat> excuse me, how can we see light from galaxies that are billions of light years away? So there's a number of creation theories about that, and they either have to do with time or space or the speed of light itself. I mean, you don't have that many choices, okay? Um, so we, we don't have time to talk about all the different creationist theories about how the light got here from the stars. I like Danny Faulkner's theory. He's the astronomer at Answers in Genesis. He's a Bob Jones graduate that we're proud of. And his theory is called the Dasha theory. Dasha is the Hebrew word for bringing forth. So on day three of creation, uh, God said, let the earth bring forth you know, grass and plants and so forth. Well, it didn't take long. And so the idea is that God did the same thing with the light. He put his finger on the fast-forward button, okay, and just sped the process up. You say, well, can he do that? Well, he, he's spoken into existence to start with, and so he can do anything he wants to do. And so I think that explains a lot, that we're talking about a supernatural act, okay? And I asked Danny Faulkner, I said, is my idea of putting your finger on the fast-forward button, does that explain your theory? He said, I've never explained it that way myself. He says, but I like it. I'm going to use it in the future. Okay, so you just put your finger on the fast-forward button, and the light gets here from the stars on day four. And I, I think that is makes good sense. It, it's the simplest of all of them, but I think it makes good sense in that. I mean, we're told in Genesis 1 that the reason God made the sun, moon, and the stars was explicitly for days, 
for seasons, for years, and for signs. Those are the four things he said. And, and if they weren't visible, well, then they can't be functional. Um, when God, when Jesus turned water into wine, I suppose it had the appearance of age um, because it needed to be functional. Uh, when Adam was created, he probably was an adult as opposed to a zygote because he needed to be functional. I wasn't there. You know, I'm, I'm making a lot of, you know, I don't know. I wasn't there. But um, yet you get the idea that when the garden was created, those trees were matured with fruit on it that they could eat. Otherwise, if they had to grow it, they'd starve to death. So, you know, God makes things functional. And I think for the stars to be functional, they've got to be observable. This idea about creation of the parent age, uh, the man who came up with that was a man named Philip Henry Goss, and he was a contemporary of Darwin. In fact, he was more, de- more well-known than Darwin was in Darwin's day. And he was a creationist. He was a lay preacher for the Plymouth Brethren and uh, loved God. And so he was up against it. He, he couldn't read a lot of things online back in those days. And so he actually came up with this idea about God creating with apparent age. And the critics of his day laughed at him to scorn, laughed him to scorn and said, you're making God out to be a deceiver, making things look old that aren't old. He said, God's not deceiving anybody. He told you exactly in his, in his word what he was doing. How could that be deception? And I thought that was a pretty good answer. Um, question here. What is the scientific purpose of the expansion of the universe? Uh, put another way, what would happen if the universe stopped expanding? Yeah, I don't know what the scientific purpose of expansion of the universe is. Um, we've only figured out that it was expanding, you know, within my lifetime. And uh, we're still trying to figure out why. I mean, God talks about stretching forth the heavens. There's about 17 different scriptures in the Old Testament where God talks about God stretching forth the heavens. It's only been in modern times that we've actually seen this. As we look into outer space, we see the, the galaxies, the further away they are from us, the faster they're speeding away from us. They're accelerating. In fact, evolutionists are concerned about the big rip. They're concerned that at some point the, the, it's going to expand so quickly it's going to rip the fabric of space-time apart, and that will be the end of the universe. So you don't have to worry about that, by the way. The Bible tells us that the world's going to end with a big bang. And Second Peter uh, chapter 3, he tells us it's going to melt with fervent heat. So you don't have to worry about the big rip. As far as what's the purpose of it is, a lot of things in the heavens, we don't know what the purpose is. A lot of things are just to show the, uh, the, you know, the majesty and power and glory of God. Okay? There's no reason for there to be trillions and trillions of stars out there other than the fact that it just shows how big our God is. Okay? So I don't think it has to have a scientific purpose. If it does have one, I don't know what it is. All right, I'm going to shift gears again. Um, heard there are a lot of similarities between genetics of different animal species as well as humans. Does this genetic similarity support evolution? Well, if I think, from, if you try to be honest about it, I, I think if you look at the similarities, yeah, that does support evolutionary viewpoint. Um, it but it also supports a creation viewpoint. You could say, okay, common features, common ancestor, or common design, common designer. Mm. So both fit. And I, and I think it's, it's kind of a push when you're talking about similarities, honestly. If I'm trying to think in my evolution view boot and my creation boot, it's, it's, 
Well, no, it's not a tie. I would give it to creation just because we have all those similarities of organisms that are not supposed to be related. Uh, like the duck-billed platypus has sonar capability, so does its close relative, the bat, and its other close relative, the, the whale. You know, <laughs> I mean, things like that, uh, where you have, or the He's vertebrate eye. And, yeah, very facetious. <laughs> or the squid eye, which not only is, is similar to humans, but the biochemistry is startlingly similar to humans. And yet the supposed ancestors don't have that. So did they come up with the same solution coincidentally? Well, we get just, as, as one evolutionist put it, convergence is everywhere. And convergence is the idea by chance they came up with the same des- solution. Well, I think it's just the same designer. It's mosaic. And so I think the more telling thing, though, is not the similarities but the differences. And in my talk, we'll talk about the differences, which are differences which evolution cannot begin to account for. And, and I've, I've seen your subdivisions here. And it's obvious that one, there was one house that came about and then it multiplied because they all had the same pattern, you know, every fourth house and so forth. So obviously those houses evolved in that subdivision, all right, because they're all the same. They all look the same, okay? They even have the same kind of plumbing fixtures and light fixtures and everything else. Obviously evolved. Common ancestors, obviously. I'm a designer. Speaking of design, we had a question related to the design and purpose of certain animals. There are certain organisms in the world whose only purpose is to harm and destroy, such as ticks and fungus. These creatures don't have uh, any goodness in their nature. They don't have any redeemable purpose. Mosquitoes you should definitely include there. Uh, For example, although a spider kills to survive, they serve a good purpose by keeping the bug population down. Um, So did they exist before the fall, or did they come uh, afterwards? Also, if these kinds of organisms existed before the curse of sin, how did they fit into a good creation? Well, I suspect they did exist before the fall, but because of the fall, they were altered. So a lot of the parasites are just reproductive digestive machines and it looks like they've degenerated they've lost capabilities that their ancestors likely had and so now they are stuck in a life that's <laughs> not so nice uh, I just heard recently and it's, this is just hearsay because I haven't looked into it but I heard the mosquitoes actually have pollinating function so I, I think that Frankly, I think that all those creatures actually did have beneficial functions, and they've gone south. Um, we are told that someday the lion and the lamb will will rest together. I think the lion would still be good with it now, but <laughs> it may not be so good for the lamb. People often ask me about viruses. What good are viruses? But viruses keep the bacterial popul- population under control. Um, also, it's, I think... As a means of genetic, beneficial genetic exchange. Yes, yeah, that's right. So we're not old enough to remember back before the fall. You may think, <laughs> you may think we're old close, enough. Close, yes, close. <laughs> yes, so we don't have a direct memory of this. I heard it said that the human genome is falling apart. Humanity is unlikely to be able to survive even a few thousand years, more years if this deterioration continues. But evolutionists dispute this. Is it just a theory or... Is there evidence that proves it? <laughs> yeah, I'll be hitting on that, too. Yeah, I've gotten, 
I've had the blessing of working with a, a super program. It's just light years ahead of anything else out there that simulates um, evolutionary scenarios and, and molecular genetically, you know, looking at populations and fitness. And basically what we find is this. You put, um, take, take the literature and use it to put in the variables for any simulation you do and then improve that by an order of magnitude in every variable in favor of evolution. And anything with a genome more complex than a bacteria will go extinct within a million years. And so it does degenerate. It is, and it's, it's inescapable, and, and geneticists are all agreeing now. They're saying, um, let's see, uh, one, one geneticist says that we are inferior to the caveman. Another one says no geneticist doubts that we're degenerating. And yet, the evolutionary model is based upon mutation produces bad, bad, bad. Oh, good. And then natural selection will save the good and accumulate it, but it, it doesn't work. The bad just will, even, even with any good you might get, and you don't get much, and it's not very good, it gets, it gets tangled up in the bad, and it's kind of like in, in our government. They get something good, and they put all this bad stuff with this law, and now it's, it's worthless. So I heard Dr. John C. Sanford speak at Bob Jones University, and I was, he's a geneticist from Cornell. An interesting story about how he came to Christ and how he went from being a theistic evolutionist to becoming an on-earth creationist. But he talks about the fact that every new baby has a hundred new mutations that the world has never seen. So you think there's, what's, you know, seven, eight billion people out there, and so that's 700 you know, billion uh, mutations. Now, some of them are, most of them are neutral and so forth, but you think about the genetic load on the human race. And what he says is that we can see the canary in coal mine is all the increase in autoimmune diseases, uh, things like gluten intolerance, um, auto, you know, um, autism, uh, asthma, allergies, and so forth. And I asked him, I said, how long does the human race have left? And he said, we don't have as much time in front of us as we have behind us. That the human race is going extinct so quickly uh, that unless the Lord returns fairly soon. I'm going to set dates now. The Lord's going to return within the next 6,000 years. Okay? So I just want you to know I'm a date setter. Okay. So you can hold me to that. Okay? But, you know, we're so used to thinking about things improving. We don't see right in front of our eyes the deterioration of the whole human race and the fact that we're going extinct at an alarming rate. Yeah, it's funny. I, I used to teach population genetics at a graduate level, and I don't know. I was blind to this. It just, this, actually, this Mendel's accountant that I used to simulate it, as Dr. Sanford said, he learned more in 45 minutes working with that program than he did with all yeah. the graduate classes he had on the subject because you could see the interaction of these things. Yeah. And one thing was super obvious if you have a mutation rate of anything over one, and something the early evolutionists understood this, and I, I didn't get it, but I get it now. If it's over one, then that means in order to get rid of all the bad mutations, you've got to select and eliminate all of the mu bad mutations, which is everybody. 
which is extinction. Yeah. So the mutation rates for, for evolution to theoretically work would have to be much less than one per person per generation. But uh, I think uh, it's, Sanford, it's about 100. I think Sanford said that every couple would have to have 77,000 children and only one would survive in order to overcome the mutation rate. Are you trying to do that? Or? <laughs> okay. I didn't know if that was what he was interested in. And the idea, though, though hundreds of average, maybe you get lucky and this person doesn't that's right. have any yes, because right. you had enough yes. to get the fluctuation, the statistical thing. Yes. I wouldn't even talk about mutations when it comes to my kids. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love them. Um, so we're going to ask a question here about you just mentioned um, Sanford, who had, who, yes. had con- who had changed. There was a he had converted yes. from the old old Earth to to new Earth to young Earth. Um, this morning you talked about people that believe in old Earth. Why would Christians not believe in the six day creation and want to come up with uh, the other ideas? That's a question from someone. So I have a course that I've been teaching online, and one of the um, things I do is have them go through various statements from. Uh, famous conservative Bible-believing theologians. And one sticks in my mind, one from Gleason Archer, who's a famous conservative commentator that people adhere to. And he said, if we just looked at Genesis, we would believe that there was six solar days six or 7,000 years ago. He says, but... We know that science tells us that the earth is billions of years old, and so we can't go against the science. And so I think a lot of these theologians are intimidated by the science. They're not trained in science, and so they're intimidated by it. And so over and over again, I have about six different theologians. All of them said the same thing. If we just look at what the Bible said, this is what we'd believe. We'd believe like young earth creationists. But because of the science, what the, what the you know, secular scientific community says, uh, we, can't, we can't hold to that. And so they're intimidated by the culture and the science around them. People don't like being laughed at, I've noticed. Okay? And if, you're, if, you, if young, you young people want to be young earth creationists, you've got to get used to a lot of uh, abuse, of people scoffing and laughing and saying you're an idiot and that type of thing. And people don't like that. I don't like that. Yeah, well, there's one who's had quite a bit of my education in secular environments having been a product of, you know, liberal background. And uh, I'll tell you, before I became, well, after I became a Christian, but still an evolutionist, um, I, in my mind, there was very little I felt more sure about than deep time evolution. I was, it's, when you look at it from their viewpoint, from the evidence that's presented, it's really impressive. But it's like Proverb eighteen seventeen says, the first to plead his case seems just until he's cross-examined. So when you only hear one viewpoint, I'll tell you, their story is beguiling. And I've known many Christian friends who've gone off to college, and they've lost their faith. And, uh, geez, and, and the thing is, I, I, I believe the case right now for not only creation, but young earth, six-day creation, is... I think in virtually, I, I can't think of a major area where it's, that view is not superior to the old earth evolutionary viewpoint. In the secular schools, you're not going to hear the other side. Right, you only get the one side. They won't, they won't put those books in their library, okay? They will ridicule you if you, you try to bring those things up. 
You can think of a young person comes from a Christian home, you know, they go, come as a freshman, maybe a biology major at a, at a state school and so forth, and immediately the attack is on, okay? They're trying to wear them down and destroy them. And so very few young people can put up with that type of situation. That's why I say it's so important for Christian young people to go to Christian schools that believe in biblical creation. Although in my strange case, when I went to Cal State Fullerton, we had one of, two of our professors was very much trying to eliminate us. Yep. And that actually caused us, whoa, I better take yep. this serious, we better study this. And that actually really... Well, there are exceptions. Yeah. Well, Praise the Lord for that. It, it kind of, it's kind of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger kind yep. of thing. <laughs> yeah. But it's killed a lot of people along the way. It does. All right, do you have any more questions? Uh, we just have a few more here, and then we'll, then we'll wrap up. So go ahead and text those questions. And I'm just going to make a little detour once more and then come back at the end to talk about talk, you know, sharing um, how do you start a conversation with someone else who, um, who's an atheist or believes in evolution. But let's uh, take a detour and ask the question about, um, about environmentalism. Conservative Christians often seem opposed to environmentalism, uh, but if God created everything, shouldn't we take good care of the earth. I'll add to that. Are there reasons why Christians should be skeptical of, of climate change? So how long do we have for that? <laughs> anyway, so I think Christians are skeptical of environmentalism because environmentalism uh, is t- taking it from a, a, um, it, not a not a human perspective. In other words, uh, as a Christian, we understand that the environment exists for man, that man is not a part of the environment. We're apart from the environment. We're to subdue the earth, have dominion over the earth. And so this envirocentric uh, position of the most environmentalist turns Christians off. In other words, the Bible is anthropocentric. That is, it's, it's centered on man, and which is the correct emphasis. Now, that doesn't mean we don't do the same things. As, as a creationist, uh, I want to be a good steward of the things that God has created. And so stewardship, certainly, I don't want to destroy the earth. I don't want to, you know, make it worse or polluted or whatever and so forth. But my reasons for not doing so are to glorify God. It's a completely different motivation there. As far as the environmental change type of thing, I, could, I liked my mentor professor's comment about uh, global warming. He says, people are talking about, is global warming real? He says, well, yes, it actually is. But he, uh, he likes to ask the question, but is it bad? Um, it's assumed to be bad, but he says, no. He says, I'm not for burning down the, the, the rainforest. I'm not, you know, or pollution or a lot of other things. But as far as looking at the big picture, um, looking at... Um, the fossil record, it would appear that through most of history, or I can't really say most, but a fossil record indicates that in times past, things were warmer. And when they were warmer, we had more, more productivity, we had more biodiversity. Uh, because if you will, and if, if it were warmer, what do you have? If it's warmer, you have more evaporation, right? More evaporation means more precipitation, or precipitation means more fresh water. What's the number one ecological need of humans today? Fresh water. Fresh water is, is our single greatest need. And the number two would be food. And guess what? 
If you've got more water, you have the ability to produce more food. So you're, in any change, you've got winners and losers. Just ask Kodak about that when the digital cameras came out. You know, they were massive losers. But in the overall, it was a win, right? And so as things change, you're going to have locally winners and losers. But I, th- I think that's a... And also, the, the global warming, what is it? It's, it's just we're rebounding from the Ice Age, which is rebounding from the flood. So we're just, we're just returning back to normal, actually. The general trend has been for things to get warmer since the end of the Ice Age. And you can't get an Ice Age without the flood. The Ice Age is proof of the flood. And actually, I argue we're still in the Ice Age because we still have polar ice caps, which for most of fossil record, we didn't have polar ice caps. You can't produce an ice cap on thing. Antarctica today because Antarctica is the driest continent on Earth. So you can't get miles of ice because it's drier than the Sahara Desert. And so the ice ice cap there in Antarctica is evidence of the Ice Age, which is evidence of the flood. They go together. Which you'll talk about more next Sunday. All right, one more question came in, and then we'll do that last question about starting a conversation about creation with someone who's atheist. Um, In the Old Testament, some people lived hundreds of years. Why do they not live that long nowadays? We just, know, how, do we, they? we just talked about, no, you're asking me? <laughs> well, we've already talked about it, right? We've talked about the destruction of the human genome. Yep. In other words, so we're, we're not an improvement on our ancestors, okay? You say, well, we're living longer. Well, that's because we have modern sanitation. I mean, today you probably had a banana for, 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 for breakfast, right? So where did that banana come from? didn't come from California, right? It probably came from South America someplace. So we have this ability to bring uh, food from everywhere on the earth. So we have this wonderful nutrition. We have wonderful medicine, wonderful technology, and so forth. But I think if you took us, put us in a time machine, took us back to the Middle Ages where they're throwing their sewage out in the streets and so forth, well, we'd probably last a week, <laughs> okay? So don't be fooled by modern technology and nutrition and medicine and so forth. We are not an improvement on people in the past, and uh, we're going downhill very quickly. I'd like to add to that. You know, before the flood, you, you, the ages that we can read about, people were living right at 900-ish, right? You had some below, mostly a little bit over 900. And then the flood happens, and what do you see? It's a logarithmic curve. And the fact is, if that were manufactured data, someone was a very clever statistician to be able to do that. Because to create data like that, to make it, you, you make it too good, it's not believable. And if it's too bad, it's not believable. And, and there's statistical tests you can do on that. And it really follows a, a standard uh, logarithmic curve of the dates that we have. And yeah, it, it drops logarithmic, you know, it drops exponentially and then yeah. levels out. You're constantly being bombarded with cosmic rays right now. They're going through your bodies, and every once in a while, one of those cosmic rays hits a, some genetic material, and it's not repairable. And, yep. uh, and uh, so, you know, and then you pass that on to your, your, the, your child, on to the next generation. Okay. But why after the flood, the logarithmic? I'm not sure. I've got guesses. But, but clearly, something happened pre-flood and post-flood yep. that was big. And it's, I mean, it's just looking at the ages, it's, it's really clear that that's where it happened. 
there's an area for future creation scientists to do some work, figure out. Uh, and we do know this much. The major cause of aging and death is mutation accumulation. That's yeah. the big thing that's going Sorry on. for all the bad news, folks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, why don't we just wrap up with that question. How do we talk to someone else um, about creation who doesn't believe in the young earth, who, who believes in evolution, who is an atheist? Well, I, I take comfort in the fact that babies aren't born believing in evolution, that it's, it's educa- it's, it comes through education. They learn about it from somebody outside of them. And so I usually try to ask a person, why do you believe what you believe? Why do you believe in billions of years and so forth? And usually what you find is somewhere along the line, maybe when they're nine years old, some teacher said something and it convinced them. And so my idea is go back to that spot, find that particular thing that convinced them to be old earthers, and then that's where you want to concentrate your effort. You say, well, I'm not a scientist. Well, you've got all these resources online. There's hardly a topic in the world about this issue that you can't find online you somewhere. You just want to mention those resources now? Yeah, so the um, Answers in Genesis, AIG, uh, has a lot of resources. You can plug in almost any question you want there, and it will give you an answer. Uh, ICR, Institute for Creation Research, uh, CMI, Creation Ministries International, CRS, which I'm a member of, Creation Research Society. There's four organizations right there. Anything that they put on their websites is going to be reliable. So you've got all this information out there. So find the reason why they first started believing in evolution, and then that's where you, you want to discuss with them. That's what I would do. I, I think you... Uh a good approach, just the wise approach, would be like if you were talking to a Mormon or Jehovah's. Um, a lot of times, the arguments are 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 not really the reason for their belief, and so save yourself a lot of time and find out. He says, "Now, if I could show you beyond isn't any reasonable doubt that this is true, would you, would you accept it?" Yeah. And if their answer is no, then. Pfft, then your arguments are just excuses. We're wasting time. We're just, you're just, this is just to make you feel good about what you've chosen, your idol that you've chosen to cling to. So, and, and it goes both ways, you know. Same thing, I, I'd say something. If you can convince me beyond any reasonable doubt, please do me a favor, show me. I'll change. You know, I'll, I'll change. This isn't, he, Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life. We're, the truth is, I'm, I'm committed to the truth, regardless of where it might take me. Any final comments that you want to make? Encouragement to our listeners, both young and old. Well, when we talk about converting people, we're talking about asking for a supernatural act. So what is it we're praying for when you have an unsaved loved one or unsaved neighbor, unsaved coworker? Uh, what are we asking God to do when we ask him to save them? Well, we're asking them to take their, their stony heart and turn it into a fleshly heart. We're asking God to transform them in such a way that they can actually accept the truth. And that's a part that only God can do. And so there has to be prayer. I mean, we're asking for a super... You can't argue somebody into salvation. Okay? I've tried. It doesn't work. <laughs> so I've learned that in 71 years. <laughs> Any closing comments? 
and, um, and then you all be dismissed. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for um, for what you've uh, what you've shared with us. Obviously, they're they're here available if you have questions that you didn't want to text in but are curious about um, both now and into the future. Thankfully, we have Dr. Chris here um, at, at GBC, but um, and then you can get in touch with. We'll them be here another us. week. There you go. Yep. So very appreciative. Um, Chris, can you close us and thank yes. the Lord for this day? Yes, Lord. Thank you so much for this time. And thank you, Lord, for what you've had to share with us, um, especially through Dr. Matsko and his wife. And the demonstrations were sure a lot of fun. Uh, Lord, thank you that you've saved us, Lord. I just think of where I came from. I was hopelessly lost. Huh. You used my evolutionary evolutionist professor to to lead me to a creationist viewpoint. <laughs> you you work in very many strange ways, and nothing is impossible for you, Lord. I pray, Father, Lord, that um, hey, it's you know age of the earth and stuff like that. It's no salvation thing, but it sure is good for your faith. <laughs> And it is sure good for sharing your faith, and it's because my mind cannot, re, my heart cannot rejoice in what my mind rejects. Thank you, Lord, that that although I still have questions, and I'm I'm glad to have questions. That I'm so thankful for the answers you provided, and what peace and what faith has resulted from it. I'm so undeserving, and. Uh, you've invested with so many amazing people of input into our lives. Thank you, Father, for it. And we pray, Father, Lord, for as we go, Lord, um, please advance your kingdom. Please use us. Please grow our faith. Thank you for this time, and thank you for this privilege. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 You're dismissed. Have a wonderful week.